mistakes. Okay, let's jump into the Bible. Everybody grab a Bible. There's a Bible from a, the chair in front of you, or you brought your own, or grab the Renovation Church app, but grab something. Uh, we're kind of in our last week in the book of Luke, at least for a little while until we get back to it in the fall. We're on page 719 in the Bibles that are here. As you're pulling it up, I'm going to come out and tell you right away, this is a passage about money, and so we are going to talk about money today, okay? But you can settle down a little bit. Uh, if you've been here for a little while, you know that all we're doing is just going verse by verse through a book in the Bible, and this is where we're at today. It's not like our staff sat down and said, you know what would be really fun? <laughs> Let's do a <laughs> right? This is just where we are in the scriptures. And Jesus talks about finances a lot. I sometimes tell people that the three most common things that Jesus talked about in the New Testament, and I think a lot of people have no idea of this, three most common things he talked about were, number one, the kingdom of God, number two, hell, number three, money. And so if you don't like this message today, I encourage you to take it up with Jesus. Okay, Uh, so we are now in Luke chapter 21, uh, verse one. Here's what it says. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Okay, pretty short passage. Before we start applying this, let me give you some important historical background on this. So, Jesus is in the temple area, and he's observing people give their financial offerings to the work there. Now, we know from Jewish writings on the temple that there are actually 13 different chests where you could donate to, you could put your offerings into, and each of the chests had like a bronze funnel on top of it, a bronze metal funnel where you'd put your coins in and help guide the coins into the chest. So guess what happens, right? The rich people come, and they're bringing in like a whole bag of coins, and what happens when you dump a whole bag of coins into a metal funnel. Well, it makes some noise. It's like, you ever been to the, it's like at the casino, right? And somebody wins a, I'm sure you've never been there, but you saw it on TV, right? <clears throat> right, then the, the coins are falling down and everybody's looking, right? It's actually, it's probably, it's all digital today. I don't know, I'm sh- no one, no, if somebody will come up to me afterwards and tell me, and then you're gonna feel awkward about it. And anyway, but along comes this poor widow, right? And all she has is just two copper coins. Now, the Greek tells us what the coins actually were. It says they were called lepton. Now, archaeologists have actually discovered these coins. Let me show you a picture of this. Now, we say this all the time. The Bible is not a fairy tale, right? This is from history, and we have this from history. This is what they look like. And we know in modern times that these coins would only be worth about a dollar or two. So let's just call it a buck fifty. So basically, this woman gave three dollars. And those $3 was all she had to live on, $3. Okay, so now that we understand the background a little bit better, let's try and just get through here. What, what is the Lord Jesus trying to teach us about in this passage? Let's take another look. I, I think verse 4 is really the heart of what Jesus is teaching. So look at it one more time with me. It says this, All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now notice, it's not about how much somebody gives. Right? Certainly this woman, in terms of, if we're just doing math and monetary value, certainly she gave less than the wealthy people, right? It's about how generously that she gave. In fact, what I think would be most helpful to do is I want to draw out two really different points of application from this text here for two different groups. So let's start with the first one. 
First point of application is this. If you are already a giver, right, you're already in the game, you're, being, you're, you're giving of your finances, uh, maybe you're tithing, uh, the question for you is, if you're already giving, are you giving generously? Could you say that you are generous with your finances? Now, I've been a pastor for about 17 years, <clears throat> and one of the interesting things that I've noticed over the last couple of years, especially when we come to passages where we're teaching on a stewardship or finances, money, any sort of that stuff, I've noticed, and this is really interesting to me, that there is a group of people that tends to tune out these sort of messages more than any other group, and it's not who you think. The group of people that is most likely to totally space out today's message is the group of people that already tithe. Now, if you never heard that word before, a tithe is a word from the New Testament. A tithe just means a tenth. In Christianity, we use tithing, giving a 10% of your finances back to God, sort of as a, a baseline to generosity for a Jesus follower. And I find, over the last couple of years, that a lot of people, if they're tithing, they hear a message like this, and automatically we go, oh, <clears throat> yep, already doing that. Check the box. What's on Facebook? You keep going there, Pastor David. All right, let me knock out some candy crush here right now. All right. <laughs> Do people still play Candy Crush? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about casinos or iPhone games. I don't know. What even gives me the right to be up here? Okay. We, we have, so many of us, we have this idea in Christianity in America that tithing is just some sort of mark that you hit, and then you earn the right to just stop thinking about it. But that's not how Jesus or any other author in the New Testament describes financial stewardship, ever. And sure, yes, tithing, giving 10%, is a helpful sort of baseline mark. But if you just set it up and then you never think about finances again in terms of your Christian walk, we are missing what Jesus teaches about it. I mean, think about some of the questions Jesus is raising in this passage. I think one of the big questions is, does God have access to your whole life? Because this woman, she gives everything. Now, this doesn't mean that you need to give 100% of your finances away. I mean, don't rule it out. Feel free to ask God that, right? But I think what happens is we sort of create this false idea from giving, and it can even dangerously permeate into the rest of your life. We say, okay, 10% is God's, uh, 90% is mine. And sometimes I think we do that with our life, too. Like, okay, well, Sunday is God's, and the rest is mine. But the teaching of Scripture is that your whole life is to be made available for God, to do with what he wants to do with. And so, I don't know, God may be calling you to give 20%, right? What if God wants you to tithe and then give above and beyond to missionaries? The truth is, we're not supposed to live like, I checked the box and that allows me to forget about it. I mean, that's how the Pharisees lived. I hit a rule. Now I don't have to think about it. That's not how followers of Jesus live. Followers of Jesus make their whole life available to God. And so if you haven't talked to God about this for a long time, I urge you to. In fact, let me give you a dangerous prayer you could pray this week. You could pray this. You could say, Lord, because my whole life is yours, my whole life is available to you, how can I become more generous? Or where else can I be generous? I just think there's something really powerful about living a generous and sacrificial life that's fully offered, fully available to God. You know, I, I, let me give you a good example of this. There are a lot of people in this church who took a step into being significantly generous for the first time uh, six years ago when we started raising money to buy this land that we're sitting on right now. 
or three or four years ago when we started raising money to build this building that we're sitting in. I talked to a lot of people in those days who they, they put off vacations for their family for a year or two years. Some people said, I was just about to buy a new car, but I'm, I'm just not going to. I'm going to give instead. I talked to a number of people who they gave their bonuses, they gave their raises so that we could be here, so the ministry could be done, so the harvest could happen. And I got to tell you, it's happening. As some of you saw this this week, multiple times in just the past three months since we've moved in here, multiple times we've had people from our church who have got to watch their spouses come to Christ in the service here. I mean, can you even imagine what that would feel like? It is unbelievable. And I just want to say to those of you that sacrificed, you gave generously. You just didn't say, oh, I checked a box, so I'm fine. You gave generously. I just want to tell you, it was worth it. And those people that, I just happened again last week. We watched their spouse come to Christ. It was unbelievable, right? And those, those people who've watched their spouse come to Christ, you know what else they're doing? They're now looking to their children, and their heart is just leaping because they're looking to their kids going, and now my kids are going to grow up with both parents teaching them about Jesus, not in a divided household. And I just have to tell you, those people will be forever grateful to you for your sacrifice. And that's the beauty of generosity. And so I just challenge you, if you've kind of checked the box and put it on a shelf, Bring it up with God. Say, God, if my life is fully available to you, where else do you want me to be generous? Okay, let me talk to a second group here. I want to talk to those of you that have kind of been sitting on the sidelines when it comes to giving, to giving to other people or organizations or giving back to God. If that's you, let me just, first of all, as a preface, say this is a teaching from Jesus. I, I don't have a secret agenda here. I'm not going to the end of the message say, and we're really hoping to raise $6 million. There isn't, there's nothing there. If you're even 5% worried about this, I will personally give you a list of great churches in the North Metro where you could give to instead of Renovation Church. This is absolutely not what this is about. We're going through the teachings of Jesus, and I want you to be able to live this out. So here's the second point of application. If you're not really giving, if you've kind of been on the sidelines of this, basically, I want you to avoid saying what I hear so many people say, and it's this refrain right here, I will give when I have more. And I think that's a great lie that many people tell themselves, and I just want you to tell you it's not true. In fact, it'll actually be hurtful to your spiritual walk if you live by that sort of thinking. I think a lot of people say, oh yes, I agree in principle, I can intellectually assent to the idea that, yes, it's good to give back to God, but I just am unable to do so in my current financial situation. And so when I have more, when I get a raise or when I get a better job, then I will be able to give or I'll be able to give more. Or for a lot of people, it's not an income issue. It's actually an expense issue. We say, okay, well, I I would give and I think it's good to give, but I'll give more when my student loans are paid off. Then I'll start tithing. Or I'll give when the car is paid off. Or I'll give when the kids are out of a daycare and you name it. And you just look at this passage and you read this passage, read it again. And you, you, we literally can't give any of our rationalizations to Jesus, right? Why? Because he just told us a story about a woman who had $3 and gave it away, right? I mean, what are you supposed to, how do you follow up with that to Jesus? And it's not just that. This is another reason why you have to know that this actually isn't a true statement. 
there have been a number of uh, sociological studies that have been done in the last decade or two that prove this as false. And in every study where they've studied how much money do you have and how generous are you, in every study they found that the more money you make, actually the less generous you become. Isn't that interesting? The poorer you are, the greater percentage of your finances that you are likely to give. Why is that? Well, it's similar to the reason that money is, money is neutral in terms of just morality, but money can be a dangerous thing. Jesus speaks about that often in the Gospels. And money, if you get more of it, often can put this vice grip on your heart. And the more of it you get, the more of it it will say to you, you need me. Don't get rid of me. And so instead of us saying, I will give more when I get more, what you ought to actually say is, I better start the habit of giving now before I get more. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? But that's actually the way that we ought to think. Let me give you another reason why not to say, I'll give more when I have more, or I'll, I'll start giving to God, or I'll start tithing when I'm done paying for A, B, and C. It's because, I've been saying this already, the teaching of the New Testament when it comes to finances is always about your heart. It's always redirecting to your heart. God does not need your money. Okay, God's not in heaven right now going, ugh, if the Smiths would just give, the Andersons. The Johnsons. Oh, those are like the three most common Minnesota names I can come up with <laughs> off the top of my head. Right, if the Smiths would just give, then, then I could finally do something. I guess I'll just wait. Right, that's not how it's working. God does not need your money. Now, there's a tension here. Obviously, God uses it, and it's good. But ultimately, this is deeply about your heart. I want you to think of it this way. Imagine that it's your birthday, uh, if you were looking for an excuse to go out to lunch today, just tell your family, a pastor just says it's my birthday, you're all taking me out to lunch, right? Now imagine it's your birthday and you have a child <clears throat> and your child's going to get you a gift for your birthday. But let's say they don't have a lot of money and nor do they have much time because they're really busy with really busy stuff like playing and uh, hanging out with friends or whatever. And so it's, it's the day of the party, it's like a half hour before the party and they go into the basement and they grab the first thing they see, which is like a toy that they no longer play with, need, or will even miss, and they wrap it up, and they give it to you, and they say, happy birthday. How do you feel opening that present? You're thrilled, right? Now, because you are so wise, and you are, you recognize that all they're really doing is they're just fulfilling a duty, right? They're going, oh, it's my parents' birthday. I am obligated to give them a gift. Uh, here's something I won't really miss. Yeah, here you go. You ever think about this? This is almost precisely how a lot of us give as Christians. We go, oh, it's time to give. I am obligated to give a gift to my father. Here's a little part that I won't really miss. Here you go. Okay, let's say you have a second child. Your second child does something totally different. They go into their room. They smash their piggy bank from all their savings from the last two years. They, they find, find their way to the store. You know, they're six and they Uber to the store or something. This isn't breaking down. Uh, <laughs> And they get you this incredible gift, right? Well, you feel differently. Okay, let's say you have a third child. It's adding up. You're going to have your own reality show here pretty soon, right? And let's say your third child, let's say it's your youngest. They don't have any money. And they decide that they're going to take their most prized possession. Let's say it's their favorite stuffed animal. And they put it in a box and they give it to you. And they say, Mommy or Daddy, I love this stuffed animal so much, but I love you even more 
and I wanted to get you something special for your birthday. You now, now do you see why Jesus is talking about generosity so much? Generosity is always indicative. It's revelatory. It reveals the condition of your heart. And a heart that truly knows how special, how good God is, will give like it. You know, it's a hard, that's a hard word, but it is a biblical word, and it's a true word. And when you truly turn your life over to God, the rest will come with it. Your time will come with it. Your schedule will come with it. Even your finances will come with it. So look at verse 4, again, if you have it in front of you. It says, the woman, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. That all she had to live on actually just comes out of one word in the Greek. And the word is bios. Bios in Greek, we'll throw it on the screen, means life. This is where we get biology from, right? Biology is the study of life, right? And so what it's saying is this woman, she put in her life. Her whole life to God. Her offering was her life. And that's why Jesus is loving this story so much. But it's like, okay, modern day America, 2021, when we think about which parts of our life God can have control of, for a lot of us, we tend to only give him things out of our margin. We're like the rich in this passage. We give back the things that we will not miss while this woman's made her whole life available to God. Like whether it's finances or our time or our talents, we tend to only give what we can afford to give without actually losing control over anything. Like a lot of us, we look to God and we say, God, I trust you, but only if it isn't risky. And only if I still feel like I'm in control. That isn't trust. It's not obedience either. It's not even faith. This woman puts in her life. You know, it's not lost on me that God has us in this very passage today. Think about the timing of this. We started this series three years ago. God has us in this very passage today as a family from our church is packing up their lives and their young children to move overseas into difficult conditions. They're a talented couple. I know the Mosses. They absolutely could succeed here in America. But they'd be exceptional, maybe in the corporate world somewhere. Many of you don't know this, but they spent the last few years of their lives living in their parents' basement with their kids so they could save up and raise money so they could bring the gospel to the poor and hurting of Eastern Europe. That's sacrifice. Their life is in. Why would you do that? Well, for them, it's because they know that they know that they know that their life is for God, and they have made their life fully, fully available to him. And this is where he's calling them. And that doesn't mean that God is calling you to do the same thing. I'm, I'm in no way saying that. But I just, I wonder sometimes, how much do we miss out on simply because we're only willing to surrender part of our lives to God. For some of you, God is calling you to something great in your life right now, and you just keep saying to him, no, you can't have that part. Put your life in. Offer your life to him. Yeah, this is just a theory, but I, I sometimes think the reason that Jesus talks about finances so much in the New Testament is because 
giving of your finances is actually one of the most practical ways that you can take a step forward to say, okay, here's, here's my life. I trust you. And then just urge you to take a step in that. You know, let me tell you, tell you a story. There was a guy by the name of Charles Blondin, who uh, he was a famous uh, French tightrope walker. You can look him up on Wikipedia later if you want. Uh, June 30th, 1859, Charles Blondin was the first person to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Huge crowd showed up, like 10,000 people, guy walks across on a tightrope, just unbelievable. And he thinks, oh, this is great, we've got to get the crowds back, so next week I'm going to have to do something better. And he does, he goes back the next week, and he goes over with a sack on his head. And then the next week he comes out again, he stands on his head. The next week he tries a somersault on the wire. The next week, he rides a bicycle across. That's insane. Here's the best one. A few weeks later, he puts a stove in a wheelbarrow. Now, don't picture like a kid's, don't picture like a modern day stove. You remember like the old ones, you know, your little fire in there? He puts it, he lights it on the fire in there, puts it on the wheelbarrow, gets halfway across. I mean, he's over Niagara Falls, cooks himself an omelet and eats it. Right? That's when you just drop the mic. You just drop the oven over at that point, right? The the falls will put it out. It's fine, right? And so everybody's talking about this guy. So they think, well, okay, how do we outdo this? And they come up with this idea, and they start advertising in the papers that Charles Blondin is going to walk across Niagara Falls with a man on his back, and they will pay $1,000 to anyone who will do it. Now, it's a lot of money in these days. And so they have this kind of recruitment day, and everybody who's kind of semi-interested comes out. And Blondine wants to show them that he can do this. It's not hard for them. So he gets a sack that weighs 200 pounds, puts it on his back, and goes back and forth, and comes back and says, see, no problem. He kind of addresses the little group there, and he says, now, how many of you believe that I can carry a man across on my back? To a person, they all go, oh, yeah, we absolutely believe you could do it. And then he starts looking at individuals in the face, and he says, will you let me carry you across Niagara Falls on my back. And to a person, each person goes. <laughs> and no, nobody will do it. Well, they've already advertised it. You know, it's not like you just throw up on Twitter that it's canceled. Everybody's coming. There's 100,000 people coming. So he looks at his manager, whose idea this was, and you know, he put all the stock into it, and he says, uh, hey, unfortunately, Harry, it's got to be you. You're getting on my back. The guy, you know, he wants to make money, so he's like, all right, I'll get on your back. 100,000 people show up. Harry, the manager, gets on his back. Things are going okay. They get about halfway across. Harry starts to get scared, and he feels, you know, with the wind, you sway a little bit when you're out there. He feels Blondine start to sway, and he does exactly what you're not supposed to do, right? One, Blondine is swaying, and he feels like you should do. What do you feel like you should do? You feel like you should go the other way which is what you don't want to do. They don't fall, and Blondine screams out at his manager, and he screams just to have the actual quote. He said, Harry, until I clear this place, you must become part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, you must rest in me completely and sway completely with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we shall both go down to our death. In other words, if you try and save yourself, you're not going to make it. You have to fully rest in me. And his manager, he does. He takes Blondine at his word and then make it across and the crowd goes wild. I read this story and I think, this is, this is Jesus' call on your life. 
it's not that hard to intellectually assent to what the Bible teaches, to go, oh, yes, you know, kind of like the people in the crowd, sure, we believe, we believe you can make it across, but it is a different thing entirely when Jesus says, I want your whole life. I want you to make your whole life available to me. You can sit here this morning and go, oh, that makes sense. Yep, okay, sure. It is a different thing entirely to walk it out. Say, I'm going to abide in you, Jesus. I'm going to rest in you. I'm going to walk with you. I will let you carry me. You know, if you're here this morning and you've never made a decision to become a follower of Jesus, this is a call in your life. It's a call to let go. Call to let go of doing things on your own. So I'm going to trust him. I'm going to go where he goes. I'm going to sway where he sways. And you can surrender your life to Jesus. And the reason that you can give your life away to Jesus is because Jesus gave his life away for you. Jesus Christ came to earth and died on the cross. And dying on the cross, he was dying in place of your sins. He was taking the punishment that you deserve. And the Bible says that when you believe in him, you say, Jesus, I believe you died in my place that he will cleanse you, wash you away of your sins. You can be forgiven. You don't have to pay for them in hell. You can have a relationship with Jesus. You can have eternal life with him in heaven. But it's one thing to sit here and say, yeah, I believe that's probably true. But it's another thing entirely to say, it's me. I'll get on your back. I will follow. But that's how we're forgiven. That's how we start a relationship. We say, I believe, I will follow. So if you're here today, and maybe you've even been thinking about this for a couple weeks, and you need to make a decision to be saved, to become a follower of Jesus, what we're going to do is we're going to sing a final song of worship here. And after that song's over, I'm just going to come, and I'm going to sit right here on the stage as people kind of shuffle out. If you want to be forgiven, you want to start a relationship with Jesus, what I want you to do is just come down and talk to me. Just take a couple minutes. I'll get you started. I'll give you some resources on how to do that, all right? All right, let's, let me pray, and then we'll, then we'll worship. Lord, we thank you uh, so much for your generosity that you looked at all of our sin and had the generosity to send your son for us. God, may we live generous lives for you. May we not give you 80% of our life or 90%. May we make it all available to you, God, to use as you would see fit in each of our situations. We worship you now as our good father. Name we pray. Amen.